Well, welcome to Chino y Chicano. It is a preview of our podcast that we are going to kick off after the first of the year as we get out of 2020 and head into 2021 and hope that things are going to get better. I'm with my buddy, Matt Chan, the Chino, and in uh, Spanish, Chino means Chinese. I'm Enrique Cerna. I'm the Chicano. I'm a second-generation Mexican-American, and we have known each other. Matt and I for over 40 years. Both of us are retired TV guys and we got time on our hands. So we thought, well, why don't we start our own podcast? What do you think we should be getting out of this, Matt? Well, one of the things I want to get across is kind of what our life experience is. I mean, we're, we're, we're over it, right? I mean, it's the end of our career, but one of the things I feel I can do is speak truthfully about my life experience. I mean, we've code switched. I mean, that's the current vernacular, right? Code switched, all our lives, you know, where you have that filter where you think before you speak because you're in front of white people, the dominant culture. And one of the things is I want to speak the truth of who we are as people of color. Yeah, I mean, we worked in a business where it was white dominated, both of us in the television business for over 40 years. And um, we also worked at a time when, there was an effort really to try to get more people of color into the business, although it was pretty slow. And uh, obviously things have changed. You have more and more people in the media business. But I think some of the same issues that we ran into uh, as we were starting out, that is just uh, being accepted and being um, wanted uh, and being respected were things that a lot of people that are in the media business today still face, but maybe in a different way. And so we're at the point now where we're kind of the... The old guys that mentor, we're like those two guys from, uh, you know, the, the Muppets. <laughs> yeah, the old guys in the balcony. We do that, but we have also have perspective because we've been there. And, and I don't know about you, but I think that uh, one of the things that I felt challenged about working in the business was just getting accepted and being respected. That was a tough thing. Well, especially for you, I think, because you were on air. I was behind the scenes. Um, you know, our careers separated once I left King. We were, I was only at King for 11 months with you. But from that 11 months, we built a lifetime friendship. Um, you know, I, so I went on towards the network and did network television shows uh, and stayed in production. And so it was different. I mean, I go to a production convention, industry convention, and there may be 5,000 people there, and I'd be the only person of color. So talk about lonely. Uh, at least at the at the TV station level, because of the FCC, there were some mandates about inclusivity. Even back then, there were some, right, because of the civil rights movement. But in network television, that's straight up business. So you just had to power through. And the indignities you suffer, um, you know, there was no such term as snowflake back then, right? <laughs> you know, and I think, and, and rightly so, younger people today expect and demand respect. You know, if we had any respect, that was a bonus. <laughs> and I think a lot of times we gained the respect by what we were able to do to produce. Now, you were in the part of the business from the production end. You were, uh, you know, we met at King Television because we both worked here in Seattle and now we live here in Seattle. But uh, in 1978, 77, 78, right in then, I think I started at King in 78. I think you came a short time after me. Uh, you made your mark by being this guy who was this tremendous editor and producer 
who also had this personality. <laughs> that you you were kind of the guy who just sort of told it like it was. And you also had uh, kind of an A personality. Me, I had kind of a B personality in the sense that I just, you know, I think uh, I wasn't a... Uh, I was one of the guys that was really striving hard to try to be accepted on air and to do good work. And as being one of the few people of color doing that, um, I was uh, kind of always treading lightly. I, what I always admired about you is that you 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 sort of like told people what you thought, and that no filter. I, I I didn't. I had a filter most of the time. But you were a good. You were just a dynamite producer. You were only there for about a year, and then you got scooped up, taken to San Francisco. And then you worked on on the production end, and then became the business guy. I stayed local here in Seattle, you know, and developed my uh, career, you know, up the ladder. And it was a long slog, um, but you know, I think that the thing about it was is that we maintained this friendship that I think really helped us because whenever we we could bitch and moan about stuff, we turned to each other. Yeah, and that was an important thing for people of color to oh, have in the to business. support each other. It's, I mean, that's so important because you have no one else. You, you know, when they always say, "Well, who's your mentor?" I have no mentor because no one came before me. That's right. And, and yeah. you know, so I mean, a lot of people wonder, like, "Well, what does production mean?" I, probably the best thing I'm known for was the show Hoarders, which is still on the air. It was a phenomenon. I created that show amongst like thousands of other hours of TV, but that was my career. Um, and towards the end of my career, I ran my own production company and that's what got me back to Seattle and back connected with you like on a, on a everyday basis. So that was good, but you know, it, it's, it's different now. And I, you know, and I hesitate to tell people like, yeah, well, this is the way it was when we were moving up, but it's different now. It's different, but some of the principles are the same on how you have to kind of suck it up and how you have to develop a thick skin. And because what, what I've come to learn, because my eyes were open, you know, when you say that, uh, you know, I move forward. And one of the reasons was because there was no, I never thought about it. I really thought about my career. I never thought about the representation of being a person of color. And it wasn't until I retired that I really started reflecting on that. I mean, I was aware of it, but I didn't know the significance of it. Because I was just trying to make a living and trying to be successful. I was trying to do that too, but I think the difference for me was that um, as a person of color, it was actually would help to open the door for me because I went to Washington State University, got a degree there. My first job was at Como Radio here in Seattle. Uh, and I was this 21-year-old Mexican-American kid that came in working in what was then the number one radio station in Seattle, had people that had worked there in the business for, you know, 20, 30 years. And I was this young kid and it was, you know, it was clear that I was a diversity hire. Well, and, and, but you're visible, you're on the air. That's right. So when people see you, they go like, he looks like me. Yeah. Or he's not white. And that's important. That's that was very so important. huge. Yeah. But you know, it's still in those times in the mid seventies and even through the eighties, um, just, uh, it, it was still a challenge, I think, and particularly in a place like Seattle. Um, it is still a dominant white city. And uh, though more people of color were making their mark and getting on the air, it was still a challenge to be accepted and respected. 
And for me, like I mentioned before, it was a long slog. Just, you know, you know, I did uh, shows that were known as minority affair shows. <laughs> they were. That's, you know, and um, I remember at times I felt very um, like, am I kind of a second class guy or something? Because we always got bad uh, air times and all this stuff and we didn't get enough resources. But without those opportunities to do shows like celebrate the differences. And I worked on rainbow express and uh, other things, true colors. And I, without those opportunities, I would not have been able to work myself up the ladder to be, I think to gain some respect as a, as a host and a producer and a reporter and a journalist. And um, I, I actually use those things to make my way uh, to develop a, a career and a reputation that I hope was uh, based on fairness and solidness and being a, a good producer and all of those things. So it was always a part of my life, you know, always from the time that I was a little kid, the color of my skin and all of that made, made a huge difference. And, and I think at times it was it's something that worked against me because I had to kind of overcome it and not let it bog me down. But there also, uh, I, I'm just at a point in my life where I'm very proud of what I am. And so now it's a whole different thing. And I think we're now at this generational moment now with what's happened in the past <laughs> year, really, yeah. because of what, you know, we have young people today that, you know, they're saying, hey, I'm not taking any crap and we're going to make sure that things change. Uh, believe me, I know what that was like, but I think that there's a different different mindset right now. And so things could change, but it's also brought us to this tipping point in the country where we're just divided so much. And uh, so we have a lot well, of work to I, do. I think it's, I think it's reached, young people have re taken us to the tipping point where they're ready to say, we're going to become the dominant culture. Um, you know, and like any organisms, you know, the white tribalism is fighting the, the hardest. They're having trouble with it. Before they die off, right? And they're having trouble with it because even in their own ranks, they're finding it. I mean, what I've come to learn is, you know, the, the term white privilege is fairly new, you know, right. uh, but basically I think everything can be defined as white privilege because when you don't have to code switch, so many things don't touch you, yeah. right? That's true. You know, I mean, you and I talked a lot about the, the fact of why are so many white men angry about life, you know, because very much like the sexes and the women experience, because you're always shown, you know, the ideal woman, great figure, flawless skin. White guys are shown the same thing. When have you ever seen a white guy on uh, TV that didn't have a new truck, didn't have a big house, didn't have a great looking family, right? Or have a man cave. And then you see most men struggle like everybody else, but they're conditioned to see my life should be that. Why don't I have that life? And one of the reasons is because they've never had to experience diversity that they didn't create themselves, right? right. I mean, if you're an asshole, people are going to treat you like an asshole. And if you're a white guy, right? But, you know, for any person of color, you have to code switch and you have to say, can I say this properly? Can I say that? And that's what's behind this whole rage, because for the first time in their damn lives, they're asked to inconvenience themselves for other people. And that, in the purest sense, I believe, is white privilege. I mean, let's let's face it. I think uh, being white has been at the heart of what built this country in the way that they, you know, white males have dominated it. Oh, you just look at the history, and it's always been on the backs of brown people, right? It has. Um, 
Ijeoma Oluo, I just did an interview with recently. She's a New York Times bestselling author that lives here in Seattle. She wrote the book, So You Want to Talk About Race, now has a second book called Mediocre, uh, Dangerous Legacy of White Male uh, of white male dominance in our in our society and and i think she lays it out pretty well that that's been part of our history and our structure and i think it's it's really hard for a lot of white men to hear this they feel like there's being attacked but what they don't understand is that they never they didn't have to code switch like you said they've mm-hmm. they've never been in that situation where you're you're kind of because of the color of your skin or because of your, your background, your ethnicity, you act one way when you're, or you have to deal with things one way when you're in the workplace or in school or college or whatever. And then with your buddies and all of that, or your family, then you're a different way because you know that, you know, it, it's just what you, it's the American way. And, and yeah, that's something well, that Americans are, are having a tough time understanding. Well, okay. For and I know you've experienced this, just like every person of color. You're in a group of like a large group of white people, and it's always uncomfortable for me. Even though I can quote switch really well, and I do it really well, that's why I was successful. But you see someone else of color, you don't even know them, but you're going to gravitate to them because at, for some a few moments, you're not going to have to code switch, right. and you're going to have to kind of get together and say like. Because you know so much history before you even open your mouth with them. Actually, I think you that's know? how you and I bonded in the beginning when you first came to work at King, and I was uh, I'd been there already. And I remember going to a to a party with the folks that we worked in the public affairs department, which was always an interesting group. Pretty waspy, and, yeah, very waspy, <laughs> very waspy. And I remember at this party, you would kind of gravitated toward one another, partly because we were the only two uh, people of color there. And and we got along right away. But I remember someone in that group saying to me, oh, well, you and Matt sure struck up a friendship right away. And I but I realized it was because we have a lot in common from being two men of color and people of color. And that was one of the reasons. And we also sort of could. You know, I think even the way we talked to one another was it changed right away. We didn't have to code switch. Yeah, yeah, we didn't because it was just a natural thing. And so that was, I think, what what created our friendships. And then also, uh, you know, we have a couple of other buddies that we talk to every week on Zoom as we've been in this uh, lockdown. And I think that's something that we we also talk about. And But we have this bond, I think, that we've all been through this stuff before. So, you know, that's... Um, that's our life. And that's what we've been going through. And uh, I think even at this point in our lives, we uh, uh, we have children that we you know are concerned about and what, what's going to be with their future. But I think in this podcast, we're going to be talking about this stuff because yeah, it's, it's been part of our lives. You know, I mean, but between you and me, as soon as I left the business world and sold my company, I had very little to do with white people. I mean, to t- tell you the truth, because I was exhausted by a career of having to code switch, you know? And so if I did anything for myself in retirement and and for self-care, that was like, be yourself, be around people who are like you. And that's been the best thing of retirement for me, not having to deal with network executives. (laughs) And I have to say, I'm right with you there when I decided to retire after, uh, 
long time working at uh, KCTS. I worked at King and I worked at Como, but KCTS was like 23 years. That, you know, gradually, and I and I think partly because of our friendship, we kind of went into that direction too, uh, doing, you know, work with other folks in the community. Uh, you know, different organizations like El Centro de la Raza and, and other groups that uh, needed some some direction and help from a media standpoint and um, but also wanting to reach out to those communities and, and but also having the opportunity to tell stories or to interview folks and talk to folks that are um, folks of color, but also um, being able to tell their stories, which too often are overlooked. So, but it, it, having that ability right now in retirement to kind of do the types of things I want to do, I feel very fortunate like this, like this podcast with yeah. what we're going to do. Well, both you and I do a lot more in the community. Yeah, we do. We, we do. Because you know, before we had careers, we had jobs, we had family. At this point, this is our way of giving that, back. That's very true. We are giving back through our way from the experiences that we have and taking our knowledge and, and sharing with folks. And uh, and I think that that's for both of us has been really gratifying. And that's what mm-hmm. we're going to do with this podcast, kind of talk about, uh, you know, the issues as uh, two men of color and uh, from two different communities that I think both the experience the same things in this world. Uh, We're going to share those experiences, talk about those experiences, the good, the bad, the ridiculous, uh, (laughs) and uh, also introducing folks uh, that we'll interview along the way that uh, we feel are going to be a lot more interesting than the two of us. But we we, we think that that there'll be people that you'll want to know, maybe even... uh, share some other stories of, of folks that we know along the way. And the main thing is that we can we can actually talk to each other and other people of color without code switching. I mean, that's like the biggest thing. Yeah, we can be ourselves. And that's uh, one of the really the great things about being able to do this podcast because we're we are. We're going to be ourselves. And, and we hope that people will listen to uh, to us uh, and just. Uh, enjoy. And, and if they don't like it, then you can let us know. We would appreciate that. And, <laughs> and I'm sure they won't like yeah, some I'm of sure stuff. There's going to be folks that won't like it. But if you do like it, we'd like you to let us know as well. The Chino, Matt Chan, the Chicano, Enrique Cerna, we look forward to sharing uh, many more uh, conversations with you as we move into a new year in 2021. And God, I hope it's going to be better than what it has been. The fight continues.